G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just a reminder also, the clarity of the recording currently is not quite as good as if we were doing it in the studio. So our apologies there. You know, we, we still wanted to continue with the programming even during COVID-19 issues that we've all got. But uh, of course, that does come with a bit of a down downfall there in that sometimes the recordings aren't quite as clear as we would like them to be and some of that's down to internet connections and and you name it there's all sorts of things that go on there but here we are we're going to be doing it again and we're going to continue to do it for as long as we can and the good news is that we always have so many students who want to come on the show so that makes things very easy for me in programming so I really appreciate all the assistance from our students. Now today I'd like to introduce you to Joshua Jones who is doing a PhD in environmental studies under the supervision of Dr Mick Smith. Welcome to Grad Chat Josh. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Before I go on to your research top, I want to ask you a question. Why did you want to come on Grad Chat? Well, that is a great question. That wasn't on the list, was it? <laughs> <laughs> More than anything, I think I'm currently in the proposal stage of my research, so I'm still right. figuring out the directions that I'd like to go. And more than anything, I think talking about it to yourself and having listeners listen in uh, is a great way for me to work through some of the, some of the, okay, what's viable, what's not, what, what, what is really of interest to me? Where should I go? And, and, and what can I say? Okay, maybe that is a pet project for later. Right. And it, it's, it's, always, it's always interesting why people want to come on. And, and if it's sometimes helping you clarify where you're heading, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, okay. So now I will go on to what we, we came here for, and that's to talk about your research anyway, what you're hoping to do. And your research topic is the emptiness of ecological loss and extinction, which is a fascinating title I must admit and so it was very important for me then to go straight into that you our students normally give us a bit of a synopsis of what they're trying to do so perhaps Josh you could give us a bit of an overview of your research that you're looking at so the title does it's self-explanatory in the sense that those are the major topics that I'm going to touch on but really this research is stemming from, I've done work in the past and other research uh, during my master's on death, ecological loss, um, and conservation. And coming into my PhD or, or wanting to do a PhD, I realized that the Anthropocene, if we, want to, if we may call it that, mm-hmm. is really underscored by this profound legacy and manifestation of emptiness that that cultures, languages, species, habitats are disappearing and uh, we're left with an emptier world as a result. And so coming from a biology background and having a background in conservation, I think extinction 
obviously fits in with that sort of emptiness yeah. theme or topic. And yeah, so that's really, well, I guess that's the rationale as to why I did it. The topic itself is exploring extinction. And, and what does extinction <laughs> really mean philosophically? What are we losing? Uh, how yes. does the world become emptier? Uh, because these, we, we may have an idea of uh, when a species goes extinct, what might happen in the world, but what does it mean? That's the question that I was really interested in, in exploring. And it's a good question, actually, because you're right. We, we we know when we lose something, it's like, oh, okay, we're not going to see those around anymore. But you're right. What's the impact of them not being here? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, that's, that's ex- extremely important. Okay, so before we delve too deeply into that, what I would like to um, ask you is that, you know, you're doing this under environmental the program environmental studies why are you doing it under environmental studies other than the obvious you know there's the looking at the biology and things like that but it's also got a lot of philosophy and things there so what made you choose environmental studies i'd like to say that it was less so a choice than um, <laughs> uh, a necessity but i think we may see this more and more moving forward with other individuals and students and researchers but for me there was no other option uh, than environmental studies because everything is environmental at least as far as i'm concerned extinction and emptiness these are environmental problems as much as they are philosophical social or uh, any other problem Uh, and so it it, it helped that i had done my master's in environmental studies and got to know my current supervisor in that way so i mean logistically it made sense uh but ultimately (laughs) uh i yeah i think that uh, environmentalism is sort of there, there's a, a saying that everything is political. Well, everything is environmental. Uh, I like that. I had, to be honest, I hadn't heard someone say that, but that makes total sense. So um, the fact that you're doing it there in, in that particular program, although it does also suggest too, with with graduate research these days, the the cross disciplinary aspect of our work, because even though you do say it's environmental, it does have that philosophical side as well. So that's really good. And I guess the other part of that is that you have a supervisor that you've worked with before and that student-supervisor relationship is extremely important. And so clearly you're getting on on very well with your supervisor, which is awesome, and getting some good mentorship and things along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the beauties of uh, the School of Environmental Studies here at Queen's, uh, not to plug them, uh, or I guess I should plug you them. Can. <laughs> <laughs> is is exactly as you said, that interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary uh, nature. And yeah, I went, as I said, from from sort of more hard science conservation to now I'm doing philosophy all within the same school. So yeah. And now, now you've touched on this already a little bit but I'm going to ask you the question anyway in case there's another way you'd like to formulate it why did you want to bring this subject to the fore and what led you to doing this work other than it's a you know continuance of what you're doing in your master's and thanks well I would say that my research is really inspired by a question that I asked myself which is in the Anthropocene in this era how is it that there is so much excess in some regards and in some aspects, and yet Mm -hmm. so much disappearance and emptiness in others, right? Right. We have too much waste, too much pollution, too much of something, but at the same time, we're losing, we're losing so much, uh, as I said, culture, language, habitat, species. And that sort of, I guess, axis of too much and 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 emptiness really uh, sparked my interest. And I have a very varied background in my education. So 
I had done readings on Buddhism in the past, and emptiness there is a is a is a core tenant, or at least in some schools of Buddhism. And so I was inspired largely by that, although it, it doesn't really make an appearance in, in my formal research, as I'm not a scholar of Buddhism. But uh, <laughs> I hope that's no, no, that's good. Um, one of the one of the words you used in your synopsis was the word biosemiotics. Mm-hmm which I found a fascinating word. And so, of course, I went and looked it up to make sure I understood it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I found that was interesting when it said it's like the production of or interpretation of signs or codes in our bi- biological realm. I thought that was a, a great explanation of what biosemiotics was and, and why you put that in as part of your synopsis, that particular word. And, and, you know, other words like biopolitics and emotionality mm-hmm. and, of course, ecology, all extremely important words for what you're trying to also explain. So how can philosophy help us stop the, as we hate to say it, the, cis, the sixth mass extinction event on Earth? And, and um, do we need to sort of take some action now? Well, I don't want to have it both ways, but we definitely need action. But I would say that we have to make sure that that action is meaningful, right? Right. And and that, I think, is where the role of philosophy can come in. And I, and I don't say meaningful action in, in any way to disparage what conservation or any other sort of preservation action is doing right now. By no means am I, am I trying to say that. Instead, philosophy's role is really useful in rethinking how we think about these problems and not just responding to their outcomes. Right. So when I was doing my master's research, I was researching road mortality. I was looking for animals who had been killed on roads. Right. Right. And I'm extremely happy with how that research turned out. And hopefully the findings can, can create some change. And while I was so doing that, change, there were things like, you know, um, I remember going through Alberta, they've got these tunnels that go under the road now for the for the deer to go underneath as opposed to trying to get across the road. Is that the kind of thing you were looking at there? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Inspired largely by those sort of um, wildlife overpasses or um, mm-hmm. uh, underpasses. Uh, so for the area around Kingston, I was looking at the same kind of thing. Right. Um, And one of the questions that I was asking myself during my time with that research was, is the only problem that I'm responding to the fact that animals are dying on roads? Or is there a larger, more overarching problem um, that I'm also responding to? And that is this human uh, or anthropocentrism that is creating roads, cutting through habitat without regard for any of the other species. Anything else, right. And so I turned to philosophy to try and approach and explore that problem. That isn't to say that conservation is incapable. Uh, By no means am I saying that. I believe it or not, Mm. I'm a conservationist, you know, a trained one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But but that is the role of philosophy as far as I'm concerned, helping us rethink, uh, reimagine problems. And I think... uh, just as another example, it, there's a book by the name of, it's called The Natural Alien by Neil Everden. And in that book, uh, the author early on, I'm paraphrasing, but asked the question, is a gorilla in a cage still a gorilla? Or right. is it the same gorilla? Or is it a gorilla-shaped bag of genes that is devoid of its social, environmental, uh, any other context that would make it a gorilla? And this it really, again, this is just 
this is philosophy in a nutshell. It matters how we think. It matters what we think things are. It matters how we think about problems. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yes, absolutely, we need action. But I think philosophy uh, is is integral to thinking about how we adequately uh, address said problems, especially with them. Uh, extinction. Well, what do you think about what's happening now? Because with COVID-19, there's less cars on the road, less people walking around, although that seems like it's going to be changing. But even in the short time that there's been a so-called shutdown, more wildlife and things have been, you're seeing more of it. They're, They're coming into perhaps urban areas where before they wouldn't because there was too much traffic going on basically so so what do you think about this that's going on and would that change some of your your ideas potentially yes i think um what we're seeing is in in a lot of ways humanity if we if i can use such a broad sort of (laughs) all-encompassing term i sometimes have trouble uh making peace with those but if we see a withdrawal of humanity or or at least in the west this sort of dominant development and Mm -hmm. uh, everything else if we see a withdrawal of that i I think inevitably we will see other life even other non-life coming out uh, again to the fore and and not as suppressed i think that i think that that's maybe the best way that i can put it that it seems as though how we're living in some ways is a, is a suppression of all other sort of lively and and otherwise beautiful things. Well, it just seems even all, you know flora and fauna are just flourishing mm-hmm. in this this time when everyone's being a bit more careful and a bit more caring, mm-hmm. and so it's giving you know giving nature a chance to revitalize itself to a point hasn't it 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 does appear so yes and it's uh it's i may get into it's very uh, difficult to um to parse out the human being from 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 nature and all the other surroundings as well so mm-hmm. i mean it, it's it's good for us as well despite you, you know i i miss being able to leave my house <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i'm in my basement right now <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's very true. But at the same time, we get to see so much happening in nature. And I love watching nature because we can learn lots from it. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about a mass extinction. But um, before I get more on to, to about that, what about extinction in general of animals and things or, or, you know, both, again, both flora and fauna that have become extinct because of what we've been doing, because we haven't looked at the greater good. We just only, I mean, humans are very good at just looking after themselves and not thinking about the surroundings in the same way. Uh, so what do you think about things like that, things that humans have done to sort of increase or increase the speed of extinction of some animals and things which is it's a it's a natural thing in in the world in in the in the living world of you know survival of the fittest so to speak and in, in terms of with animals and things and who's on the at the top of the um the food chain but where us humans don't seem to do it very well the animal world the animal kingdom has that balance mm. and we're not very good with that balance so what what are your thoughts on those sorts of things when it comes to individual species? Yeah, that's or was that too much for it. Sorry, that was quite loaded, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, no, that's a great question and and something it's it's really important to think about because you're right, extinction uh, happens. It has happened in in a lot of ways all evolution and even ourselves are products of past extinctions. Um so um I, I all I would say is that um the 
there is a there's a distinct difference in my mind between the role that human beings play in, in, in accelerating this extinction and then sort of what we might call, quote unquote, natural extinction. Uh, but right. even in the cases of natural extinction, I think that there is still a lot of grief and sadness uh, mm-hmm. that are ca- that are caught up in there. Uh, I, I view it as this uh, similar in, in some ways as uh, as death. Right. That death is right. something. Um, obviously, we don't want to see human mediated and extreme death, of course, um, but even death of loved ones, despite it them um, or despite it being entirely normal, um, it's still a very sad, uh, heavy time for us. And I think that any extinction is likely or or should uh, be thought of in similar ways, if that makes sense. It does. And uh, I've brought this up before, and and I'm sure uh, the audience is probably getting sick and tired of Colette and her Australian stuff, but we know what happened over the last Christmas period. Mm Mm-hmm. December, January, or actually from September through to about March in Australia with all the bushfires, such a bad bushfire season that we had. And I think what made the world um, sit up for a little bit um, was the fact it was all the animals and things that were um, unfortunately being killed because of the fires. And some of that is natural every year in Australia, but this was on such a high level that species who were already on those endangered lists, we still don't know the impact of what those fires have had on them. And even species such as kangaroos and koala, well, kangaroos in particular, where there's a lot of kangaroos, there's a real, you know, the population of kangaroos came down a lot and they can normally get away from fires, but even they, they struggled. Um, mm-hmm. But what? But the reason I brought that up again was that it was something on such a high level that it caught the attention of the world, mm-hmm. which normally maybe it wouldn't, but it made people stand up and go, oh, wow. And I, I think it was what, if you think about philosophy, it was that human emotion that mm-hmm. came into making people stand up and think, what's going on here? Definitely. Um, and even in more what we may call again, quote unquote, natural circumstances of a fire. I think that mm-hmm. though it might not be as widely publicized or in the sort of uh, the minds of everybody, even if there was smaller, more quote unquote, natural fires, as I said, I, I think that we may still find that emotion of, I mean, to see, to see koala bears on fire, that's, yeah, that's not good. That, that breaks my heart, you know, period. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So why, why should we, i.e. society humans, care about extinction well because it's um, a natural phenomenon in 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 one way i really do think that there isn't a case for for not caring um i think even the most human-centered utilitarian people might concede that human beings are dependent on other species in the natural world for our own existence i mean look at bees uh, yes, and, and everything that bees and, and other pollinators do, and how much uh, trouble we would be in if if bees were to go extinct, and and the threat of bees disappearing poses to us, and even in circumstances where, sorry, I should back up a little bit. I, I'm tempted to say that extinction is always a a bad, that it's always it, it's always should be seen as a, a a negative. But I was also thinking, wouldn't what would it look like if COVID nineteen was to go extinct? Hmm. Is that a right. positive, right? Um, right. But no matter how we attribute it, I think that extinction is never neutral. 
right? right. Either way, we're caring, whether it be positive or negative. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that there's a case for not caring. Now, that's very human-centered, definitely not COVID-19 centered. Yeah. And for me, human anthropocentrism can be kind of boring. But <laughs> luckily, I like to think a little bit more eco- ecologically. And I think ultimately we should care about extinction because extinction is extinction of ourselves. All extinction is extinction of ourselves, which seems right. like a pretty wild claim. But really, that's where my research is headed. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rethink ecology and how we think about ecology. So similar to, as I was saying about the, the example of the gorilla in the cage and philosophy asking questions mm-hmm. about how we come to know what something is, what that right. thing is, um, we can ask the same questions about ecology, right? How do we think about ecology? What is an ecology? And obviously in ecology, relationships and relations between organisms and the environment and one another are key. But my research is headed toward ecology and its relations as being integral to defining individuals. So uh, just an example to make it a little bit more clear. I won't use the gorilla example again, (laughs) just to not confuse anybody. Uh, So let's just imagine a tree species and a bird species. And the bird species nests in the branches of this this tree species, hypothetically. Very simple ecological relationship. So if the bird species was to go extinct or disappear from that ecology, a question that I'm really interested in asking is what what becomes of the branches that the bird mm-hmm. nested in yeah what's the purpose they right they're they're left emptier or lesser they, mm-hmm. a, a dimension of their meaning of their being is gone now that the bird has also disappeared right a dimension yes. of their meaning disappears alongside the bird and so in this vein of thinking really Ecology becomes this sort of messy, mutual, like bundle of relationships that go both ways. Right. Uh, and so ultimately bringing it back to the human beings and why should we care an extinction of ourselves. I think that when anything goes extinct, like the branches of the trees where a part of them is extinguished alongside the bird in right. any extinction, we lose parts of ourselves right. uh, and not just yes, so it's not just one extinction there's other parts exactly it, mm-hmm. it changes an ecology or the ecology changes fundamentally uh, when any change occurs i mean that it seems like that's sort of uh, easy to say but uh, well no i mean everything has an impact mm-hmm. so what we do has an impact on something else what um like you said a tree has an impact on how many birds there are potentially in the area or not <laughs> Mm-hmm. And if there's not birds or and anything that the birds might be doing, such as I would say, you know, with birds sometimes with their taking grubs off a tree or they're they're moving the pollen from the tree, if if that particular tree has flowers and things, they're sort of helping move that around. A whole a whole host of other things don't happen. Exactly. And that's sort of, I didn't want to begin to imagine such a complex sort of, I I painfully often try to keep it as simple as possible, but you're exactly right that there are myriad other connections that occur. Mm -hmm. uh, And all of them are changed in the same way as I imagine that tree is changed. Uh, Yeah, you're right. Eating eating any sort of insect or grub or anything else or pollinators, everything has changed. And it's kind of like you've, you've then broken the link. Mm-hmm. And a link was strong until it's a, a link is broken. You know, a chain is strong until you you break a link. Yep, and and that's where um, it, it's not only in terms of the the health of the ecology because I think that, like I was saying, uh, in rethinking 
ecology in general, human beings have a very particular notion of ecology. There's sort of, you know, eco ecosystems are productive and et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think that they're more than that. And so much more is lost when a species disappears. Um, yes. That it doesn't even have to be that, oh no, all the tree species are now dying. But if that, if a tree species lives on and survives after a bird species disappears, I still think that that tree is, is, is left lesser or, or more empty mm -hmm. in its absence, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And I think, wasn't it, um, oh, it was a long time ago, of course, I think in, in I think it might have been in China where they got rid of a whole lot of sparrows, but the implications of getting rid of all those sparrows then had implications on the the trees in the area at the time because they weren't doing, they didn't have this other thing there, i.e. the sparrows, helping them flourish in a different way. And I think there was more bugs and things around. So the same can be said for um, what happened in Australia, in, in, in northern Queensland, where you bring in, and this is the opposite, actually, they brought in a species to mm. to stop, they brought in the cane toads mm -hmm. to stop the spiders and the snakes and things, not realising that nothing in the food chain can attack the cane toad. Mm -hmm. So they cho changed the whole ecology there because they brought in an extra species mm -hmm. that shouldn't have been in that environment because it didn't fit that environment. I think, uh, yeah, what's very interesting there as well is that, as I said, in this, in this direction of rethinking ecology, a very important aspect of it is recognizing ecology not as something that has a structure. Oftentimes we say fit, right? Mm -hmm. Fit or, or survival of the fittest or something like right. that. Right that ecology doesn't have this, as I said, this inherent structure that then components plug into and plug out of, right? Right. But my work is starting, and I'm not the only one who, who's done this or is doing it, but thinking about ecology as something that emerges between relationships. So yes. in, the, in, the, in the notion of the cane toad, and by no means am I saying that the cane toad, you know, is, is, is a, was a great thing to happen or anything, but it's not as though the cane toad came in and and, and uh, violated the inherent structure of the ecology that it was put into, but instead it's changed it. The ecology yes. has shifted and emerged in a new way, in a mm -hmm. way that human beings did not want. Exactly. Right? And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, that's not to say again that all change is natural and we just should let it happen and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not trying to say that <laughs> by any means, but instead rethinking as maybe the common theme of of this interview rethinking what we think we know or how we think about concepts and problems yeah and i like the word you keep bringing in it's those relationships so when, if we are making change have we considered the relationships that are going on in play now or potentially in the future mm -hmm, exactly I think that's really important. So I'm going to take a little bit of a sidetrack now and because there's one more question I wanted to bring up and it's actually not about your research. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I like to do is look at some of the extracurriculars that our students do as well. I notice you've written down here you take part in several reading groups with topics ranging from, you know, new materialism, speculative realism, animal ethics, indigenous research and scholarship on Turtle Island. What made you want to do that? Was this all part of your, the interest that you have in philosophy and, and, and the environment and all that sort of thing too? Definitely, yeah. As many PhDs will likely attest, the sort of boundary line between 
personal interest in research becomes very blurred. And Mm -hmm. so I'm personally interested in all of those topics and reading about them. But my research is also very um, informed by them. Right. And you also help with the uh, intercultural safety training program that both Four Directions, is that the one also with QUIC or is it a a separate one for Four Directions Indigenous Student Centre? I believe that QUIC has done it in the past. So um, Mm -hmm. the most common exercise is a Kairos blanket exercise that hopefully... Oh yes, yes, I've done that. Yes. yes, It's it's very powerful and I encourage anyone listening, if they haven't done the Kairos blanket exercise, to try at the next uh, availability as it might yeah, be Yeah, I've done it a couple of times and I yeah. each time I, I do it, I'm, I'm still fascinated by it and then the, the conversations that we have after are just brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's Difficult uh, at times, but brilliant. That And that's if often the most important is uh, that it is difficult. But yeah, so I believe Quick has done that in the past, though my um, I've been helping with uh, Four Directions. With Laura Maracle, with the... Yes, yes, with Laura. Laura's yep. um, mm-hmm. great. And, uh, and yeah, so in, in, in a lot of ways, my research, especially on emptiness and nothingness, um, mm-hmm. is informed by sort of colonial powers and, and, uh, right. and the ways that those unfold and have uh, oppressed indigenous ways of being and so yeah it's uh, just as i said the boundary between personal interests and research I, I don't know if there's even a difference anymore <laughs> <laughs> i know that's the trouble you're right things do get blurred these days and it's very hard to sort of break them apart and mm-hmm. sort of think, well, what, what's actually happening in there? Um, all right. Well, Josh, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. I hope you've got just as much out of our conversation as I know I have, and I'm sure our audience and listeners have as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really Great experience, and uh, thank you for everything you do. No worries at all. I, um, I I get fascinated by everything you guys are doing. I just love it. I'm in such a interesting position. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So thank you again. Um, that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.